following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of the time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law applies both to the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Um, Well, for those who don't know me, hi, I'm... Logan, uh, and we'll get straight into this uh, wonderful celebratory text of the Israelites finally leaving Egypt. Um, So I want you all to think of somebody who, is that me? Oh, I'm sorry. I was stomping on the ground, I guess, too much. Um, So I want you all to think of somebody that you would trust with something crucial. Uh, It could be a special task, or something you need help with, or some kind of Um, you know, secret that you want to confide in somebody because you need some help, some kind of special information, who would you pick to be the person that you entrust this information or this request with? Uh, Think of a few people. So if my suspicions are correct, uh, and these are just suspicions, but I think they are correct, those whom uh, you will have chosen were people that you know. Um, That much seems obvious, okay? But more specifically, even a greater suspicion is that I also suspect that you chose people who were both, one, close to you, and two, exhibit some kind of qualities of trustworthiness. Uh, It would be a bit puzzling if you thought, ah, yes, the person uh, whom I will trust or entrust this information or task with is the next random person I see on the street, Um, Now, we can laugh and chuckle at that, um, but this natural tendency that we have to entrust things to those whom we know and those who are are trustworthy uh, is indicative of something important about our relationships and our evaluation of people. Um, Moreover, it's probably the case um, that you didn't pick anyone, just, just anyone that you were close to. 
Um, we naturally make assessments implicitly or subconsciously or sometimes explicitly. Uh, we make assessments about how people have acted in the past. And uh, on that basis, we make judgments about how trustworthy people are for things in the future. Um, would I confide in somebody close to me if I knew for certain that they were utterly horrible at keeping secrets uh, and had even broken promises with me before? Now, I've probably done this before, but it wasn't a good decision. <laughs> um, we, we might have done that, but we probably should not have done that. Uh, similarly, would I ask someone to do something very crucial for me if I knew that they were a total flake and had flaked on me in the past? Probably not. And if I did, I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> um, we make judgments about what people are like based on how they've acted. And this is not like some form of harsh, cruelty, evil judgment in making those kinds of assessments. It's just our way of acknowledging realities. Some people, on the basis of how they act, prove to be more or less trustworthy than others. Uh, and in this passage we're looking at, Exodus 12, tonight tells the story of the Israelites finally, like, we're halfway through the book, basically, finally departing uh, from Egypt. And as we'll see, it puts on full display the deep trustworthiness of God. So you may have noticed in this text that it includes some curious and somewhat random details. Um, one of those details is the phrase, oh yes, yeah, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. What seems rather redundant from the previous phrase, it says, yes, and they asked them for their silver and gold and all their clothing, and God gave them favor, and then they took their silver and gold and all their clothing, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. Like, yes, I knew that. that is, that's just reiterating what, I'm, what, what you've just said. Uh, the other curious detail is the specification of the length that they were in the land. Now, on one level, this is like an indication that this was a really long time and it was really bad. Um, but why include these details? Is there anything more going on here? Now, although um, uh, this occurs in the middle of the book of Exodus, or more like the first third of the book of Exodus, um, our text this evening is practically the end of a long section of narrative that stretches all the way back to Genesis 15. And back then, right after Abraham initially trusts God, God promises to give him a massive family. But he also provides a bit of a caveat. Um, know for certain, he says, that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign country. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will execute judgment on that nation that they will serve. And afterwards, they will come out with many possessions. As Brandon said last week, the name of the book Exodus tells you the ending from the beginning. They get out. Exodus literally means the way out. <laughs> um, um, but more importantly than the name of the book, sorry to undercut you, Brandon, uh, more importantly than the name of the book is the fact that in Genesis 15, God himself said to Abraham that although he'll make his descendants numerous, um, they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. God will judge Egypt for enslaving them, and they will escape with possessions. And this section of Exodus seems to give a really, really, really big nudge to the reader. Hey, remember when God said that they'd be here for 400 years? There's a discrepancy between 400 and 430, but we'll leave it. 400-ish um, years, um, and that they'd come out with lots of stuff? Yeah, that, like, actually finally happened. Like, literally a book later. We are in Exodus 12, and that was predicted in Genesis 15. That actually happened. God said, God did what he said he would do. 
So Genesis 15 is the first place where we get some details of, the Israel, of Israel's oppression in Egypt and the Exodus so explicitly indicated beforehand. However, earlier in the book of Exodus, the story is dropping hints that God is still remembering what he said in Genesis 15 and he will do what he did in Exodus 12. Um, so uh, when God hears the cry of his people, it says that he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Then God springs into action, and the next chapter, you get the call of Moses. So um, when God reveals his name to Moses, when he doubts his own ability to be sent to Pharaoh and the people, etc., God says, I am who I am. Now this title is notoriously difficult to translate because in Hebrew, future tense verbs and present tense verbs are exactly the same. So does this mean, I will be who I will be, I am who I will be, I will be who I am, or I am who I am? Okay, so we have four options, basically, and I'll choose one of them um, <laughs> as, as we go uh, along. Um, so, um, what the narrative is telling the reader, and, and Moses at this point, is that God has not forgotten his promises, and he will make good on those promises to Abraham to bring his people out of Egypt. So God introduces himself to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, i.e., I am the God of the covenant, and I am still that God who remembers his covenant back from Genesis 15, which the reader probably at this point has forgotten. It's like literally 36 chapters later. <laughs> um, so uh, God introduces himself as that, and then he tells Moses, I would suggest, I will be who I am. So he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of that covenant, and because I still will be that God... Therefore, I will make good on my promises. I will remain to be that God, he says. So you can trust me that I will bring my people out of Egypt. Now, as I mentioned before, you wouldn't just trust anyone with crucial information or a special task. You shouldn't entrust things to just anyone. You entrust things to people who are trustworthy. Why should Moses and the Israelites trust God at this point? Is it because he is just God? Is it because, well, you know, you should trust God just because, because he's God. And that's God, so you should trust him because you should trust him. I actually think there is something going on here when God indicates his name as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's actually giving them reason to trust him. Um, God has already demonstrated himself as faithful by giving Abraham and Sarah a son in their old age. Sarah was so old that producing a child at that age was basically the equivalent of bringing life out of death. That is what Paul says in Romans 4. And demonstrating his power over the evil power of death, God made good to his promise to Abraham by giving him Isaac, the miraculously birthed child. By calling himself the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, God reminds Moses not only that he made promises to Abraham, but also that he has demonstrated his power and faithfulness by already fulfilling some of those promises which seemed impossible at the time. If God is so trustworthy and powerful so as to bring Isaac into existence almost literally out of nothing, why would they not trust him to make good on his promise to bring the Israelites out of the power of Pharaoh and Egypt? God's name, then, I will be who I am, points the reader forwards to the liberating action of God in the Exodus, in the text that we just read. But it does so precisely by pointing the reader backwards to God's promise to act against the Egyptians and in the favor 
of the Israelites. Yet all the while, it also highlights God's present and continued commitment to himself and his own words. In other words, because God won't change, he will be who he, will, he, he, will be who he is. What he has previously said he will do, and he will, what he has previously said he will do, he actually will do in the future. Now, the Israelites, as we read, did not trust God in this way. To quote Psalm 106 again, the ancestors in Egypt failed to appreciate God's miraculous deeds. They failed to remember his many acts of loyal love, and they rebelled at the sea by the Red Sea. Yet he delivered them for the sake of his own reputation, because he will be what he will be. He will be who he is. Um, that he might reveal his power. Now, we'll hear in a future sermon about Israel's failure uh, to trust God at the Red Sea, but for now we should note that Moses and the Israelites should have hoped and should have trusted in God during their present experience of oppression by looking at God's past promise to deliver them and trusting in the fact that he would be consistent with that promise. He will be who he is, the God of the promise. And Exodus 12 shows us that it is indeed uh, who that it is indeed the God who will be who He will be is the one that saves us and saves His people. So, what about us? Um, to most of us, at least to my knowledge, have never been enslaved to someone or to an oppressive government uh, in the same way that the Israelites were. Most of us haven't experienced forced labor. Um, most of us, uh, at least to my knowledge, uh, the majority of us are not ethnically Jewish, and so the story of the Exodus isn't really something that our ancestors experienced. Um, so there isn't a one-to-one correspondence between the Exodus and our experience of the world as Gentile Christians, and we shouldn't necessarily allegorize this text and say that the Exodus is really about something else. Um, it's important that God made good on that specific promise to his own people in the Exodus. Uh, nonetheless, the early apostles do iterate that this text is instructive for us. So what does it say? So we Gentiles, again, we're not enslaved in Egypt. Yet, the earliest Christians do pick up the language of slavery and the language of getting out of something, being redeemed or exiting something. Um, to describe the experience of salvation for Gentiles. Uh, So in the early church, there were two things in particular that the story of the Exodus became instructive for. The first one is uh, liberation from sin, and the second is liberation from physical corruption. Obviously, those things are related. Human beings experience the disconnection that sin sin brings upon our relationships with others, our relationship with God, and our relationship to ourselves. It disengages us from all of those things in the world. It disengages us from experiencing creation properly and in an orderly fashion. Human beings are also subject to decay. They return from the dust from which they came. We get sick, we become weak, we get hurt, and all of us will experience the tyranny of the power of death. Through sin and through the reality of corruption, We experience all kinds of suffering, difficulty, trials, etc. Um, But what the Exodus tells us is that God's action of liberating people from oppressive suffering is, as it were, a melody that echoes throughout even the most obscure corridors of human history. The God who liberated his people from Egypt is a God who liberates. 
He is in the business of freeing people from oppressive powers. Um, God's, God frees people from the power of sin by reconnecting them with God, with others, and with themselves through Jesus Christ. And God will fully liberate people from slavery to sin and corruption by resurrecting them on the last day. Now, for us Gentile believers and for Jewish believers, the resurrection of Jesus was an indication of what God will do for all of us, both Jews and Gentiles, in the end. It is, as it were, a kind of promissory event. In the same way that God said in Genesis 15, Hi, Abraham, you'll have a huge family, but this is going to be really hard for them. They're going to experience lots of oppression and suffering, and yet I will still judge them. And in the same way that the Israelites are supposed to trust in the future power of God to liberate them by looking back at his promise, so we believers now look back at the promise of the resurrection in the event of Jesus' resurrection as the hope for our future liberation from corruption and fully from the tyranny of sin. Now, in this sense, the Christian hope is not something abstract. It's not a general, vague, optimistic look on the future. It's not a general belief that everything is going to be okay, and it's not the general belief that uh, we can just have a happy orientation uh, to things that will happen. It is something irreducibly concrete. It's something particular, and it's something real, and it's something physical. We're looking forward particularly to the event of the resurrection. And in the same way that our hope is not abstract or general or ethereal or undefined, also the basis of that hope is also concrete. It's based in an event that God did in the past. He resurrected Jesus from the dead. Um, that event is, as it were, a picture of what is to come. And because God is consistent, because he will do what he says he will do, we can take the resurrection of Jesus as a firm basis for our conviction and hope of God's promises in the future to liberate all of creation from the tyranny of corruption. So, um, a few points from this. Um, first, uh, part of our discipleship is developing certain ways of looking at or perceiving our experiences. Uh, when the Israelites looked at the power of Pharaoh, when they experienced the oppression of slave drivers, they perceived it as an indication that God had forgotten them. They saw it as meaning their own destruction, their eradication. Yet if they had remembered the character of God, if they had remembered what he'd done in the past and what he said he would do in his promises... Um, then uh, it would not have uh, made them, it would have made them despair just a bit less. It would have enabled them to endure that experience differently. Um, now, if they had remembered the character of God, it would not have made them get out of slavery any more quickly, but it would have helped them experience it much differently and experience it at least in a bit of hope. Now, I know that for me, there are certain anxieties that I've had in the past and uh, or certain anxieties I've had in the past have seemed so insurmountable that I've faltered in trusting God. Um, but through our present experiences of difficulty and suffering, whatever they might be, they can, though they can appear so threatening so as to eclipse everything else in our lives, the practice of bringing to mind the resurrection of Jesus 
and looking forward to our resurrection realigns our interpretation of our experience. Our formation consists deeply in reactions to and perceptions of the world and our experience. So what does it look like for us uh, to develop those hopeful practices? And how do we contextualize different, uh, difficulty by situating it within the resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection of our bodies? Secondarily, uh, looking forward by looking back, i.e. hope, does not consist in escapism. Uh, When we witness or experience difficulty, oppression, suffering, or any other kind of negativity, looking to the resurrection of Jesus and looking forward to our own resurrection is not supposed to be a way of ignoring our present difficulty. Uh, And it's not a way necessarily of getting out of it. The Israelites would have been in, in Egypt for 400 years, whether they hoped during it or whether they despaired during it. Um, but, nonetheless, hope and looking forward by looki- looking back is a way of contextualizing our difficulty. It's a way that we remain hopeful and knowing that suffering isn't all there is, that this won't be the end of us, and that one day we will be relieved from this life of suffering and brought into a life of joy. Looking forward to the resurrection by trusting God's power and faithfulness empowers us to address and engage the present circumstance with more clarity, with more patience, and with more hope. Hope doesn't bring us or enable us to leave, escape, or disengage from our difficulties, but rather helps us bear with them and endure them in the present. And so we can take heart, knowing that God will be who he is. The God who resurrected Jesus Christ is the God who will resurrect us, He has proven himself powerful and trustworthy by making good on his promises to Israel. So why would we doubt that he would make he would not why would we doubt that he would make good on his promises to us? So I'll end with a uh, some words from a poem called "View Me, uh, Lord" by Thomas Campion. He says, "Worldly joys like shadows fade when the heavenly light appears, but the covenants thou hast made." Endless, no, not days nor years. In thy word, O Lord, is my trust. To thy mercies fast I fly. Though I am but clay and dust, yet thy grace can lift me high. I'll pray for us. Um, Father, I thank you that um, the resurrection of Jesus can give us hope. I thank you that we can witness your faithfulness in your word. And on that basis, we trust in your power and your trustworthiness and your consistency with yourself. Um, Father, would you uh, empower us to see the world in light of your faithfulness, to see the world in light of the resurrection of Jesus, and to see our difficulties in light of the future resurrection that is to come. Give us hope in all things, and let us contextualize our difficulty within the purview of the life that is to come. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.